Live. Okay, and welcome everyone to this edition of the Women of the Revolution. My name is Susan Bonner and Deb is with me. And we are, are going to be talking about the Women of the Revolution, the American Revolution. Uh, this is an educational endeavor and historically accurate. Deb does most of the research and she makes damn well sure that her um, resources and her references are not what you would find in a regular textbook. Isn't that right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I go to historians and that I trust and um, uh, publications that I trust. Well, it's a lovely spring day here in Montana. We have snow, grapple, which I know people don't understand what grapple is. I, did you ever have grapple where you lived? No, we didn't have grapple. <laughs> Grapple is a mix of snow and hail, with it not being quite haily, but it, it's round and it's not flaky like snow, but it's not hard like hail. So here in these parts, they call it grapple. Well, that's cute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because so sun, rain, sun, snow, grapple, sun, grapple. Oh, my husband wasn't paying attention today with the stupid rooster, the French rooster we have. Yeah. And he nailed my husband. Oh, no. Yes, but he didn't do anything to him. So I looked at his leg and made sure it was okay. I said, you carry a staff around so you could kick this rooster's butt. Where was your staff? He's like, oh, I had it. I just wasn't paying attention. I'm like, really? I hate this thing. Yeah. I'm never having a rooster ever again. No. They can they can be kind of fuddy. Yeah. Well, somebody told me if you pick them up from when they're a little baby, that they wouldn't be as bad, but I don't trust them. You never trust a rooster like you never trust a scorpion. That's true. <laughs> Just like you never trust a politician. Okay, with that, we're going to recap what we were doing last show. We were highlighting the wives of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. We do it once a month. And this, the, these signers are from Massachusetts. Usually we get through it in one show, but there's just too much around the ladies and their husbands in Massachusetts and everything. So this is part two. And the signers of the Massachusetts, of the declaration from Massachusetts was John Adams and Abigail Adams, we did last show. Samuel Adams, we did his first wife, Elizabeth, and now we're on to his second wife, Betsy, that he, uh, we're finishing up because we only did half of her. Uh, we also talked about the Battle of Boston, the Siege of Boston. We talked about, um, let's see, where am I? No, no, that's talked about the history of um, uh, Massachusetts. So now we have to get to Eldbridge Gary and his wife, Anne, Don Hancock and his wife, Dorothy, and Robert Treat Payne and his wife, Sally. But we were in the middle of Samuel and Elizabeth, 
um, we need to get that article up. Did you find where we left off what, what I told you? Got it. Okay. So, without further ado, we're going to go and finish off Samuel and Elizabeth Adams. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, let's see. We are having, let's see. Okay. So, the next glimpse we get of the family relations of Samuel and Elizabeth Adams was in a letter that has been preserved, which he wrote from Philadelphia, June 28th. 1775, nearly a year after his friends had brought him new raiment and filled his purse in Boston to attend the First Continental Congress. Remember we said he was not the bestest businessman in the world. He was really into, um, you know, activism, politics, and, and uh, you know, the affairs between the mother country and the colonies. And he spent a lot of time out there you know, preaching and, you know, getting people rubbed up about what was going on. And and uh, so he, he didn't make much money. And his wife, God love her. I mean, we discovered she is just, in a, you know, in a, she could do a lot with a little, let's put it that way, and raising her kids and keeping her home. And apparently it was very nice, even though, you know, they were they were poor. So people got together. They wanted him to go to the Continental Congress, and they bought him, you know, clothes so he could look nice in Philadelphia amongst the other nice-looking people. And this is where we begin here. Okay, Governor Gage had just made his proclamation offering pardon to all persons who shall forthwith lay down their arms and return to the duties of peaceable subjects excepting only from the benefit of such pardon Samuel Adams and John Hancock, whose offenses were of too flagitious a nature to admit of any other consideration than that of condign punishment. So everybody else was would be pardoned, except for Sam Adams and uh, John Hancock. No, 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 they were going to get them and take them across the pond and give them a <laughs> trial and hopefully, in their minds, hang them. So, he writes, uh, the Battle of Bunker, Bunker Hill had been fought and Dr. Joseph Warren had been killed. Oh, that was really too bad. He was a wonderful man. If you get a chance to read about uh, Joseph Warren, do so. Okay, his letter was as follows. My dearest Bessie, yesterday I received letters from some of our friends at the camp informing me of the engagement between the American troops and the rebel army at Charlestown. I cannot but be great, greatly rejoiced at the tried valor of our countrymen who by all accounts behaved with an intrepidity, becoming those who fought for their liberties against the mercenary soldiers of a tyrant. It is painful to me to reflect on the terror I suppose you were under on hearing the noise of war so near. Favor me, my dear, with an account of your apprehensions at that time under your own hand. I pray God to cover the heads of our countrymen in every day of battle and ever to protect you from injury in these distracted times. The death of our truly amiable and worthy friend, Dr. Warren, is greatly afflicting. The language of friendship is how shall we resign him. But it is our duty to submit to the dispensations of heaven whose ways are ever gracious and just. He fell in glorious struggle for public liberty. Mr. Pitts and Dr. Church informed me that my dear son has at last 
escaped from the prison at Boston. Remember me to my dear Hannah and Sister Polly and to all friends. Let me know where good old Surrey is. Gage has made me respectable by naming me first among those who are to receive no favor from him. I thoroughly despise him and his proclamation. The clock is now striking 12. I therefore wish you good night. Yours most affectionately, S. Adams. Early in August, Samuel Adams and the other delegates from Massachusetts hurried home. Congress had adjourned from August 1st until September 5th, and when Adams arrived from Philadelphia, he found the General Assembly of the Territory of Massachusetts Bay in session and himself entitled to sit as one of the 18 counselors. The delegation had in charge $500,000 for the use of Washington's army. Samuel Adams was at once elected Secretary of State. Mrs. Adams, who had been forced to leave Boston, was living with her daughter at the home of her aged father in Cambridge, and Samuel Adams, Jr. held an appointment as surgeon in Washington's army. Friends were looking after all of them. Mr. Adams' visit with his family was a short one, and on September 12th, he started on his return to Philadelphia, traveling on horseback on a horse loaned him by John Adams. An interesting letter is still preserved, written by Mrs. Adams to her husband during this Congress. It is as follows. This is from Cambridge, February 19, 75. My dear, I received your affectionate letter by Fessenden, and I thank you for your concern for my health and safety. I beg you would not give yourself any pain on our being so near the camp. The place I am in is so situated that if the regulars should ever take Prospect Hill, which, God forbid, I should be able to make an escape, as I am with a few stones cast of a back road, which leads to the most retired part of Newton. I beg you to excuse the very poor writing, as my paper is bad and my pen made with scissors. I should be glad, my dear, if you shouldn't come down soon, you would write me word who to apply for some money, for I am low in cash and everything is very dear. May I subscribe myself, yours, Elizabeth Adams. The closing years of Mrs. Adams' life brought more of peace and comfort than had her had than had been her portion during the Revolution or the years leading up to it from her marriage in 1754. After the British evacuated Boston, she and her family returned to the city to live. Sometimes they were low in cash, as she naively put it, but with her fine sewing and Hannah's exquisite embroidery, they managed to live in comfort. Samuel Adams retired from Congress in 1781, but was constantly in office in Massachusetts, the salary of which, while he did not much consider it, must have been of great help to her. During Hancock's incumbency of the gubernatorial chair, Adams was lieutenant governor, and upon the death of Hancock in 1793, Adams succeeded him as the chief executive of the state and was re-elected governor in 95 and 96, declining re-election because of failing health. The death of Dr. Samuel Adams in 1788 was a great blow to the father, which was somewhat ameliorated by his satisfaction at the happy marriage of his daughter Hannah, who had become the wife of Captain Thomas Wells a younger brother of Mrs. Adams, her stepmother. They lived in a comfortable house on Winter Street, and the last days of the aged pair were made comfortable by his son, who, dying, left claims against the government, which yielded about $6,000. This sum, fortunately invested, sufficed for the simple wants of the old patriot and his wife. Sam Adams died in 1803, and his wife followed him five years later. Aww. Well, the thing is that, again, we're told that these were old, rich, white men that had everything that they wanted. And no, they all were not. Nope. 
Nope, they weren't. Um, in fact, and even the rich ones, you know, the, the white privileged ones, um, they lost, how many of the signers lost their fortunes? Oh, God, it was it was quite a number of them. Um, they because they spent they they kept giving the money to the army and and supplies and whatnot and they they loaned you know they loaned money um, which they never got back and and many of them even though they had started out as you know the rich privileged white male um, they didn't have anything at the end a lot of them you know lost their homes and they lost their their uh, fortune so lot and some of them lost their lives I hate one-sided history well that's why we do this show exactly and hopefully we're getting followers um I just want to tell the folks since they're the first time listeners that you can find all of our shows here at talk show of course but if you want one-stop shopping, go to uncooperativeradio.com. There's Brian and I show the Uncooperative Radio. There's the Women of the Revolution there as well, and you can download all of them for free. And there's also Patriots Pub, which covers the Continental Congress of 1787, day by day, in the founder's words, no politics. The first show is political with history. This show is political with history. Patriots Pub is not. It's just total history. So go to uncooperativeradio.com because the only thing, and this is something that the founding father said, that can stop a tyrannical government is people being educated. Yes, James Madison really believed in that. And as you see, not all of the founders were rich. And they also, not all the founders believed in slavery, um, slavery as well. So if you knew this, then the next time you come across a prog, you could educate them as well. Okay. So that was Elizabeth and Samuel Adams. And I'm going to be highlighting now Elbridge, Eld, Elbridge Gary and his wife, Anne. Now, it, it, when I was reading this, because this is a pretty long article, and they, they jump around a lot in it, but um, so I might have to jump around as well. Because when I was reading this and we were doing the first part of the show and I had talked to Deb off air, it's amazing how everybody knew everybody in Boston. And I want her to explain that a little bit because they were, like, they were marrying each other. I mean, and you think that Boston is a huge port. You know, that no, no one's going to know any. They, they went to the same churches because um, I was just reading that Elbridge, Elbridge, Gary, and Anne went to the first congressional church, which the Adams, Adamses did too. Sam and uh, I'm not Sam, um, John and Abigail. They were both pure, you know, he was a staunch Puritan, just like the Adamses. Right. Um, but it's amazing to me, and, and people probably don't realize this, how close knit in this big port city of Boston, these people really were. Yeah, it wasn't that big. When you went thinking of it in relative terms to today, um, as I explained last week, at this time, Boston was practically an island that was connected to the mainland by a neck, the Boston neck. And 
today it's all been filled in. They, they, I mean, if you look at a map today, you won't be able to find the neck because it's surrounded by Boston, and Boston goes into the mainland. And then you have Cambridge and Concord and Lexington and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And they're all, you know, you, you can get there in no time flat. I mean, people live in Lexington and work in Boston and, and Cambridge and, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's Cambridge, Lexington, Concord, and those little um, cities that are, you know, cities now, but they were villages then, um, you know, they, they became the bedroom communities of Boston and but back then it was, you know, you you got on in your horse or on, in your carriage, and and you had you know a few hours. Oh God, my cat just got me. I'm sorry. Oh, I have a kitten who's who's very excitable, and she has lots of claws. Oh, um, what was I saying? I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, startled me. Um, so back then you had a bit of a drive to get from Boston because you had to you know come up the neck and then go north or west or south um, to get to the different villages. And in between, it was it was woods and fields and, you know, rural. Um, it, not at all like today. So when you think of Boston, you have to think of a colonial port, which is a lot different than, you know, the, the, the port of today, which is, humongous i mean my god um but you have to remember that the ships coming into the port were a lot smaller than the freighters and the uh the cruise ships and you know whatever else comes in and out of the ports they're a lot smaller than what we have today too so you have to put everything into a smaller scale when thinking back then you know population size of uh you know, ships and and and, and roads. Um, a lot of them were just pathways. Um, and and if you uh, ever have driven in Boston, you will realize that it was basically they followed the deer trails. I swear, you know, whichever way the deer the deer rambled, they just put in a street. It's very different <laughs> than New York. Which is all nice squares and you know grids and things, but uh, yeah, Boston's a trip. If you ever get to go there, you, you really need to. And but look, take a map of it in the 1700s, and and then go to Boston, and it's just freaking amazing. So that's you know they they, they so if you were on Boston, you're pretty much on an island, you know per se, um, and and you all lived together. You went to the same church. In your area of Boston, Sam Adams was in the north end of Boston, and he went to the North Church. Um, but you know, depending on which part of your your uh, which part of Boston you were in, um, I mean, it took, you know, if you went to visit somebody in in Cambridge in those days, you might you know try to do it in one day, but usually stayed overnight because it was it was a good job. Well, you you were talking about that. We were talking about it off air, um, like because we're going to be talking about Lexington, like how Lexington, where it was, Cambridge. Well, you were born and raised in in, in uh, Massachusetts, but you were in close to New York, right? In the rural rural areas. Yeah, I was in the the sticks. I'm on the western end of Massachusetts, 
which nobody knows exists because everybody says finds out I'm from from Massachusetts, they all think I'm from Boston. And no, no, uh, it was three hours to Boston from where I lived. I mean, I'm on I'm on the western end of the state, and Boston, of course, is the most eastern. Except you know, Cape Cod, and go out on the the little elbow there. But I mean, people don't know about the western end of Massachusetts unless you worked for GE, because it was a big GE the town that I grew up in until the Carter years. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, you don't hear about it, and that's why I don't pack my car and have a yacht or drink soda from Africa. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because when we first got our Land Rover, um, my husband wanted to go and do, you know, uh, four-wheeling because that's what we got it for, and we had actually gone four-wheeling with the the Jeep that we had, we had a Jeep Wrangler, but he couldn't see. It was too small for him. He's huge. He's six foot four. He's 275 muscle. And it was just too small. After about six months, he was like, I can't drive this anymore. And I'm like, yeah, no kidding. He was a little squished. But one of the excursions, one of the very first excursions we took was in um, Massachusetts, was the northern part of um, New York crossing into Massachusetts. And I, I have it written somewhere in one of my journals, but I don't remember the little town. But, it, you know, the first, we've done some pretty gnarly four-wheeling. This was really mild. And it was amazing to talk to the people in this little town because every time we, we went to a town, every time we went to a different state or a different area of the United States, because I was a travel nurse for four years, and we've been across the entire North American continent. And if you want to learn about it, Go to Amazon.com and look up Susan Francis Bonner. I have four books up there, um, e-books, and one of them is Opening a Registered Nurse's Eyes, A Lost Altering Journey Across North America. And every time we would go to any place, we would find a bar, a local bar, because that's where, just like I always, I, I love that we talk about the taverns and the founding fathers and the legislatures meeting in taverns, because we thought the same thing before I even was a conservative, that the, the pulse of an area is in their bars, right? Mm-hmm. So it was amazing how they hated, they these people in Massachusetts, they hated the way the state was run. Yeah, mm-hmm. they hated the, the people in Boston. They hated the way the, the legislatures were acting. I mean, it, it was pretty eye-opening. But my husband wanted to get the, he wanted, his goal was to get the Land Rover. Now, this is a nice, brand-new, shiny, shiny thing. He wanted it scratched to hell. He wanted to go into deep brush because he didn't want it to be all nice and shiny. It wanted, he wanted it's a utility truck. It's a four-wheel drive truck. It's not going to look like this. So that was his goal. And we were going through all these brushes and in the middle of these woods, in the middle of nowhere. No one was around. And we found tombstones, old, old tombstones. And some of them were so old. It was like a, you could see it was a little um, – cemetery because it did have old fencing around it and a lot of these tombstones they were so worn that you couldn't didn't know who they were i thought mm-hmm. that was the coolest freaking thing now i grew up with all that because my father being a history buff as well as a funeral director i was quite familiar with cemeteries in fact my brother went on a genealogy Free for a while looking up our our ancestors because we've been in Massachusetts for 
since the pilgrims because some of us came, uh, a couple came from England that I'm related to on the Mayflower. And, um, and so I'm, I'm a Mayflower baby. But we've been in Massachusetts forever. We started out in the Boston area, uh, the Leonard's there, and the, uh, um, oh, God, what was their name? Anyways, there was another family. And they, um, the Sampsons, and somehow I'm related to Deborah Sampson, too. I'm not exactly quite sure, but she's in our genealogy. She, um, but then we moved westward and ended up in the rural part of Massachusetts in the western end of the state. So uh, it's really interesting. My dad, my brother found um, Abigail Sampson's tombstone in a in a cemetery that, you know, he was looking into the, the, uh, the records of our, you know, at the library and in the courthouse. And uh, he found Abigail Sampson's tombstone there from 17-something. I can't remember the exact date. And um, we also have a sampler that she did as a child. Well, and the other thing that I'm going to bring up is because when they mention some of these places, I'm just going to ask you what, if you know where they are when I'm doing um, Eldridge, Gary, and his wife, Anne. But the interesting thing is not only were this particular delegation to the Declaration of Independence, and, and like Eldridge went on to the Constitution, even though like in his biography, he was for the Declaration of Independence, he was for the Articles of Confederation, but he was against the Constitution because, and this is one thing that Brian and I drive us crazy about Mark Levin with his Liberty Amendment. He said there cannot be ever a runaway convention, and that's not true. The Constitution of this United States created a brand new government. It was a runaway convention. That's why the the New York delegation walked out because they were supposed to fix it, not create something new. And one when they when they started to fix it, they realized that you know this isn't this isn't an easy fix. It's got to be completely redone. So there can be a runaway convention of the states, okay? That's one thing that drives me insane about him. The other thing is I actually heard one of his amendments, Deb, and I don't know if you have, but when he first came out with his book, he was touting it on his show. And I'm not a scholar or anything, but I was walking out of the room and I went, what the hell is wrong with you? You just gave complete more power to the central government and you took it away from the state because one of the amendments said that if they pass a law then the states have so many days to see if it's constitutional federally or statewide and then they decide whether they're going to comply with it or not we don't have to do that now i i just you know i'm i'm paraphrasing but i was like what are you talking about you just gave the federal government more power than they have right now. We don't have to listen to any of these laws, right, Deb? We don't have to. We, the states are the most powerful things in this union. The governors of each state are more powerful than the president. Yes. Yeah. Well, this is this is what we have gotten so far away from. 
Um, and, and I get email alerts from the Tenth Amendment Center, which, you know, their big thing is, is legalizing marijuana right now because, that's, you know, they're, they're libertarians, really. And, but they have a lot of good information on the Tenth Amendment, if you're not familiar with it. And they, they also tell the, the history behind a lot of the, um, the uh, you know, situations that they write about so that you know exactly what, or, well, it, when you read about, when you read some of the information over the Tenth Amendment Center, you, you find out how far we have come from the founder's original intent behind the Constitution. And that's why well, that's, you go over and, and, like Susan says, to on, on cooperative radio blog site because you have to um, get as much information on what they were saying during the Constitutional Convention in 87 because a lot of it, uh, and, and when you read the Declaration of Independence and you read um, what what they were, you know, what their, their uh, the, the Patriots' um, issues were, you'll find that you you'll understand why there are the things in the Constitution that there are. They had a reason for every single thing word that they wrote in that Constitution. It wasn't just a willy nilly. Oh, let's make a Constitution. No, they had a reason for everything they put in there. Well, and that's that's exactly why we have to tell. That's why I'm doing the signers of the Declaration of Independence because um, this is a founding document. This is this the Declaration is the document with which our constitu- Constitution was founded on. All of the principles on all the complaints that we have in the Declaration were addressed in the Constitution. So you can't just go by the Constitution. And, I, and this is a new thing that Wall Builders is doing, and thank God that they're bringing this up. The Declaration is our founding document, not the Constitution. The Constitution addresses and grants what we're saying under God we should have as our rights, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of people do not know that. No. Ugh, I I am having nothing but problems with this damn phone. It's not mine. It's my husband's. (laughs) My other phone that's mine is a new phone. I can't stand this. I know. I know. Technology is getting way out of hand in my estimation. But. Oh, gosh. (laughs) It's given me all this history. It's like, oh, and before the show, I'm sitting here in front of my computer. I haven't touched it. It's charged at 74%. I got all the links up. It was 10 minutes before the show. I didn't even touch anything. I wasn't touching my mouth. I was reading. The whole thing just shut down. Yeah. I know. I know. <sighs> all right. Um, I have to I, – I need to reboot this. I need to reboot this stupid thing. Okay. 
I just, I, I can't get back to where I was <laughs> on the phone. What the heck? Stop it. Oh, oh, this is wonderful. This is um, a letter from George Washington to John A. Washington when he first came to Boston. Now, you have to remember, he was a Virginia, a Virginian uh, well-to-do person. You know, he's, he's a Virginian, which was quite different from New England. But I, so while you're rebooting, I'm going to read this, if you don't mind. Because this is uh, I don't and then yeah, and then we definitely have to get to Elbridge Gary though. Yeah, we have but to. But yeah, no, definitely go do what you have guess. Because yeah. <laughs> I have to reboot my We're all my phone. I charged I it took me five times to try to get into talk to you tonight, my I know. Okay. He writes, I found a mixed multitude of people here under very little discipline, order, or government. I found the enemy in possession of a place called Bunkers Hill on Charlestown Neck, strongly entrenched in fortifying themselves. I found part of our army on two hills, called Winter and Prospect Hills, about a mile and a quarter from the enemy on Bunkers Hill in a very insecure state. I found another part of the army at this village and a third part at Roxbury, guarding the entrance in and out of of Boston. My whole time since I came here has been employed in throwing up lines of defense at these three several places to secure, in the first instance, our own troops from any attempts of the enemy, and in the next to cut off all communication between their troops and the country. For to do this and to prevent them from penetrating into the country with fire and sword, and to harass them if they do, is all that is expected of me, and if effected, must totally overthrow the designs of administration, as the whole force of Great Britain in the town and harbor of Boston can answer no other end than to sink her under the disgrace and weight of the expense. So, I mean, he came in, and uh, he had no, he had never been there before, you know, and um, he, he was he was quite amazed at the well. First thing he did when he got into camp was he had them build latrine pits because they had not. They went. They were on the Boston Common, which you know before people would graze their sheep and their cows, and so all of a sudden there's like you know thousands and thousands of militiamen who have come from all the different colonies and they've all encamped on Boston Commons and the surrounding areas, and the place was filthy because no one had assigned latrine duty. They were drinking. They were, you know, I'm, nobody was really in charge. I mean, it was a, if you read about it, it, it really, um, it, it was up to this one, one man, and I can't think of his name at this time because um, it's one of those days. But, he, you know, he had been put in charge of the, the militia slash army, but, you know, he wasn't. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't, um, you know, a, a general. Uh, he became a general all of a sudden, and he took charge. And, um, you know, all of a sudden there's this one man who's in charge of thousands and thousands and thousands of people from all the different colonies that had come, and it was very hard. So Washington and his people, his contingent, got together and, you know, he declared there was no drinking, no gambling, you will have latrines, um, you will cook your own food, you will clean up after yourself, you will be in an orderly fashion. And it took him a few months to achieve this. So 
it, it's really interesting to get a chance to read about, um, you know, when he first came to Boston. It, it's it's a fun story. I mean, he he just he, he talk about culture shock. So, but I just wanted to share that with you because you know it it, it was well it just tickled me. Okay, so we're going to Elder, El Elbridge Gary. Yeah. Too many G's there, not enough. I'm not sure. Um, which one are we starting with? Are you st- are you there? Are you back? Oh, maybe not. Okay. Well, I shall start write- reading about Ann Thompson Gary, and a lot of these, uh, most of what we're reading comes from ColonialHall.com, and. Uh, a lot of the uh, the articles we're reading comes from the wives of the signers, the women behind the Declaration of Independence by Harry Clinton Green and Mary Walcott Green from Wall Builder Press. Uh, it was originally published in 1912 as Volume 3 of the Pioneer Mothers of America, which I believe you can find on Google Books. Uh, um, I, I believe that one is there. I know Elizabeth Slett's book is on is there but this this was uh hers was written in the 1800s this was written in 1912 and uh so if you want to you want to look more into that that's where we're getting this information so okay now ann thompson was a new york woman whom elbridge gary the young statesman from massachusetts met and married during the time he was a member of the continental congress She was the daughter of James Thompson and came from an old and highly honored family. She was born in 1763 or 50. No, it must have been 53. They have it mistaken here. And educated in Dublin, Ireland for her two two brothers being at the same time students at Edinburgh uh, University in Scotland. They afterward entered the English Army but never saw service in America. Elbridge Gary was in Congress almost continuously from 1776 until 1785 when he returned to private life in Cambridge, Mass., introducing his young wife, who became almost at once a social favorite. He was not long to enjoy the companionship of her husband, however, as in 1797, Mr. Gary was sent to France by President Adams, and after his return from that mission was almost constantly in office, either in the service of the state or nation. Whatever his position was, however, whether member of Congress, governor of his native state, or vice president of the United States, Mrs. Gary proved herself a fitting helpmeet of her husband and cheerfully and gracefully met the demands of official and social life which devolved upon her. Her husband's biographer says of her, she possessed considerable force of character and a dignified and gentle manner, and although an invalid, she personally superintended the extra education and religious training of her children and inspired them with a strong affection and reverence for herself, which was evidenced by their devotion to her in her later years in New Haven. In a letter to James Monroe on State Affairs written by Mr. Gary in 1787, there appears this paragraph, your sentiments are perfectly correspondent with my most with my own respecting domestic happiness. It is the only happiness in this life which in my opinion is worth pursuit. Our little pet is named Catherine after his grandma. Oh, you're back. Okay. I am back. Oh, my goodness gracious me. 
I cannot. I, my phone, my old phone, was a smarter, it was a, a smartphone, but it was a dumber smartphone. Yeah. These are smart, smart, smartphones. I hate them. I know. I know. I don't. That's why I don't have one. I have an old retro. Uh. Anyways, I'm I'm halfway through um, Ann Thompson Gary right now. Okay, might as well finish it up then. That's weird. Okay, now Mr. Gary died suddenly in 1814 in the midst of his term of office as vice president. His biographer relates that shortly before he breathed his last, he drew from his bosom a miniature which he always wore when the original was absent. He spoke of it with an interest to show that although the surpassing beauty delineated in the picture might have first charmed the imagination, more enduring qualities had left the impressive affection on his heart. Three sons and six daughters survived Mr. Gary. Um, yeah, let's see. The last survey. Okay. Oh, wow, 1894. His, his youngest lived to uh, 1894 and was the last surviving daughter of a signer of the independence, Emily Louise. Eldridge Gary, Elbridge Gary inherited a large fortune from his father, and after his death it was found that the fortune had been to a great extent sacrificed in the cause of his country and Mrs. Gary disposed of the beautiful home in Cambridge and eventually settled in New Haven, where she died in 1849, and was buried in the old cemetery where sleep many of her children. The inscription on her monument reads, Born August 12, 1763, I guess it was 63, died March 17, 1849, and the widow of Elbridge Gary, Vice President of the U.S., his name is immortalized on the declaration of his country's independence, hers and the transcendent virtues of domestic life. Both are involved in the veneration of their children. So there doesn't, I mean, again, you know, like I say so often, um, it's the men who, who, were, who spoke in public, and unless there's journals and letters from the wives, we really don't know that much about their lives because it wasn't written down or it was lost in fires as we discussed earlier when you know the British came through and and destroyed towns um a lot of a lot of papers were destroyed as well and again like Sam Adams who who destroyed much of his correspondence which you know you can't blame him since he was basically an outlaw a fugitive from the king's justice um and then martha washington burned all her letters because she didn't think it was any of your goddamn business basically <laughs> well you know and that you bring up a good point on both on both ends first of all he was completely different than samuel adams so like when like we were talking earlier you know he was actually very wealthy samuel adams wasn't the other thing is you and i and my husband and almost half of, more than half of this country would be considered outlaws under this king. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we wouldn't have they put would, up. They would, be, they would be coming for us, Deb. But we would be on the front lines. You know, we'd be, you know, God knows I could be a, you know, an, um, a follower, a camp follower. You too, you're a nurse. Yep. And that's, <laughs> That, but that's the point that gets me pissed off about the progs. They have no clue how good they have it. Right. None. 
No. Not at all. That they're allowed to do what they're allowed to do. I know. I know. It's like I, I so often, you know, having been on the front lines of the feminist movement in the 60s and 70s until I got disgusted with the turning of events in, within the community, um, you know, we were fighting for the right to have our own credit card in our own name without our husband's signature. We were we were fighting to be able to choose which job we wanted, not to have a list of jobs that we could apply for. And now they're they're bitching because they have to pay for their own birth control. <laughs> well, that's the, and the other thing is that you know, and I, I talked about it on the uh, Cooperative Radio Show as well. Because you and I have talked about it, and I, I do mention you quite often, just so you know. <laughs> Why, my ears are burning. <laughs> well, I, I have to pump, and Brian does. He pumps the Woman of the Revolution show all the time. Um, we, what you had explained to, uh, to, to me, and a lot of women are saying right now, especially conservative women who were in the women's movement and went, what the hell? Yep was that they were supposedly fighting for our right to choose, but mm-hmm. they're not allowing us to choose anymore. No, no, no. It started um, really heavy in the 80s when, God forbid, you wanted to stay home and raise your children. Uh, that was a no-no. I, my, my guidance counselor sat me down because I, you know, I had the, the grades to go on to university and all I wanted to do was train horses. And at this time, there was only two horse trainers in the country that were women, and I wanted to be the third, if not the fourth. And my guidance counselor said, no, you have to become a doctor or a lawyer. That's what you should do. I said, I want to train horses. And she says, no. No, you don't. Well, you know, that was... that was. Uh, that didn't sit well with me, and, and as I stayed within the movement and found out that more choices were evaporating before our eyes, that there was one path that you could go down, it was corporate or, you know, medical or law, um, but it was still, you know, you put on a suit and pantyhose instead of jeans and shit kickers, um, you know, that. And then I remember, because we own a, a plumbing company, um, my husband's a plumbing contractor, and I've, I've crawled with him, and, you know, when we first started the business, I was on the job site, too. And, you know, women were just starting to come into the construction business. It's, that's an all-boy network, I'll tell you that right now. But, you know, if you tell someone that you want to run a construction company, they look at you like one of these women. They look at you like, Why? You know, and and that's the, the, it was supposed to be you could choose, but only if you choose what they deem acceptable today. And I just, you know, that's wrong. That's totally wrong. And these women. Now, where, the, where are you, oh. what, are you, what are you reading Elbridge Gary from? The Society of the Descendants of the Signers? Uh, yeah, I was over at Colonial Hall. No, this isn't Colonial Hall. I read ColonialHall.com and Thompson Gary. Page one. Elbridge Gary? Oh, no, this is, I read Ann Thompson Gary. Okay, because the one you gave me is under, it says 
it says her name, but when I click on it, it's, hold on, Ann Thompson Gary, Colonial Hall. But when I, I click on it, I go to, oh, okay, there, I, you gave me two of him. Well, I, the top one is her, and the second one is him. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah, it was, I but I, I should have um, put a space in between them. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah you should have. <laughs> I'm so confused now. Yes. All right, good, because that had a lot on her, and this other one has a lot on him, but, but with her in between. Yeah, he was a good friend of Sam Adams. Um, well, which is really funny, too, because if you think about it, and that's why I'm glad that we do discuss this this way. If these are all, you know, everyone thinks that everybody at, at this time were of the same mindset and the same background and the same this and the same that. No, they were all different. We were independent thinkers. We were independent doers. I mean, you think about Samuel, he's this, Elsbridge and his wife are staunch Puritans, just like John and Abigail. Samuel Adams was a rebel, yeah, and he was poor. Uh, Sam Adams started in 1750s um, wanting independence. He, he was talking about it in, in the late 1750s, um, and that's what I tell people that, you know, during the Obama years when so many of us were in despair, I said, look, Sam Adams waited almost 30 years for his dream of an independent country to come into being, but he never gave up. Well, and the thing is also, he, him and his wife were poor. Sam, uh, Abigail wanted not, only to be a farmer, okay? We're, we're, but they all, he was, him and his wife were very rich, but they all were in the same circles, Okay. They didn't look down on other people because we were a Christian nation. On, in our hearts and souls, Christianity was the bedrock which, which we dealt with people. And even though they, were to, they lived in the same areas, I, um, and again, this is why I'm bringing it up, because um, Anne and, uh, and um, who's, hold on, I'm losing my train of thought, and Elizabeth, they were both in Boston, although, and, but, and Abigail and Dorothy were outside of Boston when all this stuff was happening, like, you know, when it, when it was starting to get dicey, right? Right, yes. Um, Elizabeth was, she was uh, out, um, she went to another um, house. She went to her her, uh, her aged father's house. I just read that. Now I can't think of God, there's just so much information here. Excuse uh, me. Yeah, I, I know, but, but, but I'm trying to pay the outside, picture. Yeah, Abigail was in Braintree for the most part. Right. Uh, so I'm trying, to, I'm trying to paint a picture of all these individuals that are doing things together, the different places they were at, the different people they were, but they were all united under a cause. Yes, that was the thing. That was the, that was the, the common, that's what kept these people, even with all their great differences um, in, in a, you know, what should happen. Because you have to remember that 
it wasn't until John Adams got up in, in um, the, the Congress and and gave his heartfelt speech that they were even considering taking up arms. You know, and this was after Boston. I mean, he 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 defended the the two soldiers that were up for um, murder at the Boston Massacre. He defended them because he believed in justice. Um, you don't hang someone without a trial, and whoever is is accused has a defender. I mean, that was his his one of his base beliefs. Well, well and that's what, and that that look back then they thought that being a lawyer was one of the most noblest um, professions that you could do. Look at how corrupted, because of course evil's going to get into anything that that, that, that can corrupt. Uh, to Popeye comes from. Well, they didn't go to progressive universities either. No, and they didn't. And but but think about that as well. Look, Samuel Adams instigated the, the Boston Massacre. He had had it up to here with everybody saying, no, we can do this, Logan. Yeah, he was like, well, guess what? Actually, Samuel Adams was a terrorist. And yes, he, he was. He was, he was, well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you, if yeah. you, you know, <laughs> yeah, sorry. in the harbor. and, and Yeah, he was a terrorist. Right but, there. Okay. Um, <laughs> but, and and but going he, on the thing, though, Deb, that I just said, like how everybody was different, they came from different backgrounds, some were rich, some were poor. Think about this, again, with the unifying thing. John Adams was his second cousin. John had to know Samuel was planning something, number one. Well, we'll talked, never hear about it, right? He talked to him. You know, Sam tried to, you know, Sam worked on getting him involved. And he goes, I don't like your methods because he was a man of the law. Whereas Sam Adams was more of an activist, you know, the law be damned as long as we get what we need here. Um, Sam Adams, you know, he he wasn't for, for you know, he, he really wasn't a violent person. But if violence was necessary, he wouldn't say no. But his his great thing was to get the people to think. Get them to know what was going on and to think what how it affects them and what they can do about it. He was the motivator. John Adams was the law man of law, and which you know it's like the 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 flame and the 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 candle holder. You know, you, you have the, the 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 structure underneath the flame so you you're, don't burn the house down if you, if that's not exactly the best analogy but if you know what i mean you know he was more the temperer and sam was the flame as well as eldridge elbridge gary because he spent his fortune on supplying the army recruiting soldiers and I mean, he gave a lot of money away to to keep the army in what they needed. Well, and the other thing that I'm, I'm was bringing up is, even though he defended the British soldiers against his cousin, okay, he, he was basically going against his cousin. 
and saying, I don't care, this is how it's going to happen. Again, us being independent thinkers, us being Christians, yes. doing the right thing no matter what or who you go up against. John was against Samuel, but they still went together to sign the Declaration of Independence. Right. This yes. is by far the most beautiful and annoying thing that we have done. <laughs> yes. Because our our country has come so so diametrically against each other, you know these people didn't agree, but they agreed on one thing: liberty, freedom. I mean, it drives me insane to think that our citizens are doing this to ourselves. You know, I talked about this on a non cooperative radio show, Deb, that even though even though the loyalists were against us, they are not as bad, bad in any way, shape, or form as these progs are. Well, no, that's the difference between, um, you know, basically communism and, um, well, the, the, the parliamentarian type of um, governing that was happening at the time. Um, the, uh, the the no 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 that's not why it's because we lost God oh well that's what communists got rid of God exactly these people are evil and you know what I want to tell everybody you have to know that they don't care they want their day in the sun and they don't care how they get it they will destroy you well, it's time but. They want revolution. They're they're sad because they haven't gotten revolution. I mean, that's anyway, so. we need to move on. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to, since you took the uh, L, uh, the uh, Garys, I'm going to do the Hancock. So we're going to switch a little, okay? Because in the Hancock, you have a couple of things that you need to bring up anyway. So do me a favor and bring up the Battle of Lexington, have that ready, and have what you found on Paul Revere. Okay. Is that okay? That's a fine. All right. Again, from Colonial Hall, Dorothy Quincy Hancock, the wife of John Hancock, which, by the way, him putting his signature so huge on the Declaration of Independence, yeah, we talked about this before, before I get into her. You and I have talked about it. Could you imagine sitting at home and having your husband, because my husband's done some crazy things to our neighbor. We have a really nasty neighbor who's gone now, thank God. But I've been, you know, listening to the, the stuff he's, like, him, these two men battling each other. And I'm like, why? Why are you doing this? Yeah. Like, Why? My husband has done some really gnarly things to this neighbor. He deserved it, though. He's, he's pure evil. Um, but I'd be going, I'm like, you did what? What did you do? I could just see Dorothy going, John, what did you do, John? Yeah. You, just, you just didn't sign the thing, John? You just couldn't just sign it? You couldn't just? You had to make it the biggest signature, John, really? Because you've got to think of these women's minds, right? Well, plus, they all had children. You know, it was like, oh, okay. Like, right, you, couldn't, 
And you just couldn't go and just sign the damn thing, John, really? Oh, no, it had to be the first one and the biggest, yep, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, my God, but she knew who she married, so, like, I know who I married. Phil, <laughs> I scratched my head, like, really, Brian, you really had to do this? <laughs> okay, so, Colonial Hall, Dorothy Quincy Hancock. By the accident of being the presiding officer of the Continental Congress of 1775, Don Hancock was the first man to affix his signature to the Declaration of Independence and thereby conferred upon his beautiful Boston bride, Dorothy Quincy, again, the Quincy's, they're all marrying into the Hancocks, they're all marrying into the Adamses, right? Yeah. The honor of being the wife of the first signer. Dorothy Quincy was the youngest of the 10 children of Judge Edmund Quincy. She was born May 10, 1747, and grew up in the sheltered environment of a wealthy and well-regulated England home. Carefully reared watchfulness, through, under a, though under a gentle mother's the early part of her life, that's a bad sentence, when old enough, she was launched in the social world under more favorable auspices than usually fall to the lot of a young girl. Cultured and agreeable, she drew friends and attracted admirers. She won all hearts and a place in society from which nothing could dethrone her. Admired and sought after, Dorothy Quincy steered through the dangerous shoals of high-season compliments to remain a bright, unspoiled beauty with no flatter, with that no flattery could harm. Take that one, J Lo, right? <laughs> <laughs> this seems a, a rather pervert tribute. It must be attributed to the possible, possibly biased viewpoint of an admiring, admiring descendant. Dorothy's mother was Elizabeth Wendell, daughter of Abraham and Catherine Wendell of New York, an educated and accomplished woman of high character with a taste for social life and a liking for the society of young people. So it came that the Quincy household, with its bevy of handsome girls, had many visitors. John Adams, a rising young lawyer of Boston at the time, was a frequent caller. And in his diary, we find that several times he had, quote, gone over to the house of Justice Quincy and had a talk with him. Adams occasionally mentions Esther Quincy, the elder sister of Dorothy, and also a cousin, Hannah Quincy. Um, I guess that's why his son is John Quincy Adams, huh? Yeah. Both are described as being handsome and brilliant girls, given to lively repartee and the young lawyer with his vantages, vantage, vantage, I don't even know what that word is, met in them his match. In 1759 is found this entry. I talked with Esther about the folly of love, about despising it, about being above it, pretended to be insensible of tender passions, which made them laugh. Esther at the time had a devoted admirer, Jonathan Seawall, whom she married in 1763. Another sister, Elizabeth, had long been married to Jonathan Seawall's brother, Samuel. Sarah Quincy, 15 years older than Dorothy, was married to General William Greenless. Another sister, Catherine, died unmarried. John Hancock, the handsome young merchant who had just succeeded to the great wealth and business of his uncle, Thomas Hancock, was, of course, a welcome visitor at the Quincy home. 
wow, this is like this is like my house, man. Everybody was always at my house. <laughs> my house was the party house. <laughs> Everybody was always there. Mine, mine was the it house of the block. <laughs> I know how this feels. Okay. Um, okay. The son of a highly respected minister and the grandson of another, young Hancock had graduated from Harvard College at the age of 17. I, it, it amazes me, Deb, when I read this. Yeah. They, we were so, so educated. Mm. And now what are we arguing over? Whether a boy that thinks he's a girl can go pee in a girl's bathroom? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, the guy graduated 17 from Harvard College. Yes. Oh, institution at the time. Huh? It was a very religious institution at the time. I know. I have actually, I went to Wall Builders, um, I think you and I did it on one of our shows, and we went through all the Christian institutions that are like places of debauchery now. Mm-hmm. But that's, look, that's what evil does. That's what the devil does. He finds that, and that's what he goes into. Um, he had immediately got into the counting room of his uncle and had greatly pleased the old gentleman by his intelligence and attention to his duty. In 1750, the young man was sent to England to take charge of the London end of the business. Here, he had a chance to supplement his education with travel and acquaintance with men of affairs. He had listened to the debates of Parliament, witnessed the funeral of George II and coronation of George III, and in many ways come to have a good general knowledge of the English people and their way of thinking. Then he was recalled to America by the death of his uncle, who had left him the bulk of his great estate. Now, Think about this, ladies and gentlemen. He is a subject of the royal crown. He's a British subject. He's been through all of this with, you know, all this, you know, pop and stand, how they do things over there. He's not coming at independence from an uninformed opinion. This is one thing that I have a problem, and I don't know if you've encountered it, but I know my husband does all the time on Twitter. Our opinions are informed. We're not coming from a place of misinformation. We're not coming from a place of we know not, of not what we talk about. He knew and witnessed all this stuff, and yet he made the biggest signature on the Declaration of Independence. Is that not telling the death? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is this is... It, it, it's striking um, what these men and women. Um, well, how do I how do I say? It? Well, it's amazing how boldly they put their necks in a noose for this cause. And that's what I don't get. Are you there? I am here. Okay. That's what I don't get about the progs, because how boldly and happily they want to be enslaved. I know. I mean, at least he came, well, these people came from a point that this was absolutely the last resort, but it was so intolerable that he didn't care. 
he had bit like this was I like this. I like that we brought this out because he did not go into this ill informed. He was one of our few founders that, like they said, he he went through debates in Parliament. He was at the you know King George. He was there for the coronation. I mean, he was not coming at it from an uninformed position, and eat. And even all that, he decided he was going to have the biggest signature. That's stunning to me. Thus, John Hancock, at the age of 27, found himself one of the wealthiest men of of Massachusetts. From that time, he began closing out his commercial interests and devoting himself more and more to public affairs. His first public office was that of selectman of the town of Boston in which position he served for four years. In 1766, he was elected from Boston to the General Assembly, having as colleagues Samuel Adams, James Otis, and Thomas Cushing, able men and patriotic, whose influence was important in Hancock's afterlife. Hancock was public-spirited, generous, and always ready to go to the assistance of a friend. One time during the revolution, it was said that not less than 100 families were subsisting on his benevolence. His popularity grew, and everyone except the governor and his official clique, who held Hancock and Adams responsible for the constantly growing spirit of opposition to the acts of King and Parliament. That's exactly what's going on right now, um, Deb. I'm sorry. That's, this is exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are at this point. I don't care what anybody says, we're at this point of revolution. And the only reason that the, the, gov- and the governor and his ilk didn't like them is because they were appointed by the king. I mean, we elected these cockroaches that are up there right now who want to destroy this country and destroy our president. It's sad. Oh, it just grinds my grit. Okay. Consequently, when Hancock was elected Speaker of the Assembly of 1757, the governor vetoed the selection. Shortly before this, Governor Bannard had offered Hancock a commission as lieutenant in the militia. Hancock, knowing that it was a covert attempt at bribing him, tore up the commission in the presence of many prominent citizens. At the opening of the next session of the Assembly, Hancock was again elected Speaker, and again it was vetoed. Then he was elected a member of the executive council, and it was vetoed by the governor. God, this is—we are so here, Deb. Are mm-hmm. we not so here? Well, yeah, the IRS just put in the IRS. You know, not um, put in Ryan. Well, Ryan too, but I mean, we're we're talking about the the IRS coming in to um, and and kicking out uh, conservative nonprofits so that they didn't get their application. I mean, the IRS becoming a, a you know, a, a minion of the government, which it's not supposed to be. Okay. Then he was elected a member of the Executive Council, and that was Zito. All this but endeared Hancock to the people. During the few years immediately preceding the Battle of Lexington, the British government was constantly apprehensively watching Hancock and Adams. They were regarded as dangerous men. They could not be frightened, bribed, nor condoled. And this is our president right now, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sorry. Yes. This is Donald Trump. 
1774, the Provincial Congress of Massachusetts unanimously elected John Hancock as its president. This is the foulest, subtlest, and most venomous serpent ever issued from the egg of sedition. It is the source of rebellion, writes one loyalist pamphleteer of the period. And you bring this up all the time. These people think these guys are bad? Yeah. <laughs> ah! Oh, I love the clip of the... Uh, uh, stuff that went up on the election of the of 1800, ladies and gentlemen. Go to this uncooperative radio and listen to it. <laughs> but at least they didn't they didn't lie like they're lying now, like they're making stuff up. They were vicious, but a lot of times they didn't make stuff up, right? Oh, they, yeah, they did. They did, <laughs> I have to say. Newspapers were... Full of such stuff and pamphlets, um, because everybody you have to remember now, Massachusetts was really the birthplace of the town hall meeting, and there are newspapers. There were patriot newspapers. There were loyalist newspapers. Newspapers weren't like newspapers of today. Yeah, they told some of the news, um, but a lot of it were were letters written by people from the community, espousing upon what was going on at the time. And, and a lot of these men, um, and some women, under, you know, they, they wrote under pseudonyms. Um, they wrote serious things in, in the papers. I mean, they, they, there was no political correctness <laughs> They would call you out. Remember, this was also still the time of the duels. <laughs> so, oh, it was, yeah, you read some of these old papers and some of the the uh, letters that were written in, you know, and then they, they published. <laughs> Weehaw! Oh, yes, not much has changed. So at this time, John Hancock was courting the handsome daughter of Judge Quincy. Her father was an earnest patriot, and their home, from which the mother had departed in 1769, was the gathering place for such men as Samuel Adams and John Adams, Dr. Joseph Warren, James Otis, and others of their rebellious group. John Hancock probably seemed very much a hero in the eyes of the young woman. Anyway, we are told that she was an enthusiastic as a, a patriot as her lover and entered keenly into their plans and consultations. All right, so um, I'm going to, well, I'm going to read this, but then we're going to go to the Battle of Lexington. John Hancock at this time was living with, so you can get that queued up. John Hancock at this time was living with his aunt, Lydia Hancock, and for safety had removed from Boston to the old Hancock homestead in Lexington. Now, how far was, before I go on, how far was Lexington from Boston? Oh, I don't know exact miles, but it was a... It would be a, a few hours march. Okay, that's good to know. Yeah, it, it would take you a bit time to get there. It's it's west of Cambridge, northwest of Cambridge. Okay. Um, let's see. In Lexington, a relative, the James Clark, living in the same house with James Clark living, Reverend, Reverend James Clark living in the same house. 
Early in 1775, Judge Quincy was called away from home on business, and Mistress Dorothy, being left alone in their Boston home, accepted an invitation from Lydia Hancock to pay her a visit. And that is how Dorothy Quincy came to be present at the Battle of Lexington. Now, that's a good point that I did not know. They were not married at this time. Nope. Okay, so that's really good. I mean, I had no clue. So they were not married. She loved him to death. And she was willing to be with him, even though she knew her safety was in danger. Mm-hmm. So with that, we are going to go to the Battle of Lexington. Okay. And this is from um, MyRevolutionaryWar.com website. Okay. Now, this is 1775. And in February, the British Parliament declared the colony of Massachusetts to be an open rebellion and authorized British troops to kill the violent rebels. They were ordered to to, to destroy all the stores that had ammunition, rifles, or other arms. Lieutenant General Thomas Gage, the commander-in-chief of the British Army in America, was giving command to quell the rebellion. He gave the orders to the British troops to destroy stores and rebels. He thought that the citizens were planning to collect enough arms to form a rebellion. Some American spies learned of the British orders and sent word to the townspeople of the local areas. Paul Revere and William Dawes were sent on different routes to warn the people um, about the British march to Concord. Also, I think there there was uh, five five more, Sybil Ludington being one of them, who went... um, uh, on, on different routes to, to warn the people about the British march to Concord. Before he left, Re- Revere hung two lanterns in the bell tower of the Old North Church, indicating that the British were coming by sea. Revere is noted as yelling the famous phrase, the regulars are coming. He did not yell, the British are coming, because he would not have yelled, the British were coming, because he was British. Uh, it was the regulars, which is what they called the army, uh, the, the soldiers, the British regulars. Um, Revere, let's see, when they arrived in Lexington, Dr. Samuel Prescott joined Revere and Dawes in order to spread the word to the townspeople. Just after 1 a.m., between Mexican and Concord, Revere and Dawes ran into a British patrol. Revere was captured trying to escape, and Dawes was forced away and rode back to Lexington. However, Prescott managed to finish his route to Concord. On April 18th, during the early morning hours, Gage dispatched troops under Lieutenant Colonel Francis Smith and Major James Pitcam, Pitcairn sorry, to seize these munitions. The British force left Boston Common and landed their boats at Fitz Farm. Between 11 p.m. and 12 a.m., they waited ashore and waited two hours while extra provisions were landed and distributed. On April 19th, between 1 a.m. and 2 a.m., Smith finally got his troops marching. When they arrived at Monotony around 3 a.m., Smith learned that his advance was no longer a secret. He ordered Pitcairn ahead with six light companies to secure the bridges at Concord. The town of Lexington was a small crossroads community of 750 people, the village. The British forces were prepared to face 500 militia. At first, there was about 170 militiamen that responded to the initial calling of arms. After waiting for a while and not seeing any British forces, they were told to disperse and wait for the next call. At around 1 a.m., there were only 70 out of the original 170 militiamen that constituted the American force. Captain John Parker managed to get about 40 militiamen to the line to line up on the town's green. Another 30 or so militia were scattered around the common grounds and nearby buildings. Around 
4.30 a.m., Pitcar neared the Lexington Common. Their guns were already primed and loaded. As the British approached Lexington, their advance guard captured three militia scouts that were just outside of the town waiting to spot the British approach. The fourth militia scout, Badass Brown, escaped capture and rode back into town. He warned Parker that the British were one half mile away. Pitcairn was told that 500 militiamen were in town waiting for his force. <laughs> I love this. He showed his advance and waited for Smith's force to catch up to his. Pitcairn ordered his men to surround the dis- and, and disarm the local militia that had gathered, specifically ordering them not to open fire on the militia at nearly the same time. Parker ordered his militia to disperse, which they began to do. Pitcairn's plan was to not get bogged down, since his orders were to peacefully take possession of the conquered bridges. However, he could not leave the militia unmolested. Meanwhile, Parker was satisfied with the show of presence by the militia and did not want to become engaged in a skirmish with the British. At 5 a.m., just as the sun was beginning to rise, Pitcairn ordered his men to double their ranks, load their muskets, and sent them into the town at a double-quick march. As the first British soldiers reached the community church at the southern end of the common green, Pitcairn rode to the front of his troops and ordered the militiamen to lay down their arms and disperse. Parker recognized that if 70 militia did not have a chance against the powerful British force and passed the word for his men to disperse, Parker told his men not to disarm but just disperse. An unknown soldier accidentally fired a shot. This was the infamous shot heard round the world. It was not known if it was the British or militia that fired the shot. The British soldiers immediately formed up in ranks, fired on the militia who were at a range of about 40 yards. Pitcairn moved among his soldiers, trying to regain order and telling his men to cease firing. The militia returned fire while they began to scatter for cover. Within a matter of minutes, the British troops made a bayonet charge and swept the militia from the common green. The British had broken ranks and were about to start breaking into houses when Smith arrived. Pitcairn and Smith soon got their troops under control and re-established order. They reformed their men into columns, fired a traditional victory volley, and headed on towards Concord. Pitcairn's horse was hit in two places, and the regulars charged forward with bayonets. Captain Parker witnessed his cousin Jonas running through. Eight Massachusetts men were killed and ten were wounded against only one British soldier of the 10th foot wounded. He uh, was named Johnson. The eight, eight British colonists killed. The first to die in the Revolutionary War were John Brown, Samuel Hadley, Caleb Harrington, Jonathan Harrington, Robert Monroe, Isaac Muzzy, S.E.L. Porter, and Jonas Parker. Jonathan Harrington, fatally wounded by a British musket ball, managed to crawl back to his home, and he died upon his doorstep. One wounded man, Prince Estabrook, was a black slave who served in the town's militia. The light infantry companies under Pitcairn at the common got beyond their officers' control. They were firing in different directions and preparing to enter private homes. Upon hearing the sounds of muskets, Colonel Smith rode forward from the grenadier column. He quickly found a drummer and ordered him to beat assembly. The grenadiers arrived shortly thereafter, and once they were rounded up, the light infantry were then permitted to fire a victory volley, after which the column was reformed and marched towards Concord. So that was the Battle of Lexington, which was the beginning of it all, the official war. Good. Okay, so now I'm going to continue with Dorothy Hancock, but we are going to talk about Paul Revere once I get into it, because we went to the battle, and now we're going to have to backtrack 
and um, let's see. So, so Dorothy is going to Quincy. I'm Dorothy Quincy because she's not married yet. Is going to Lexington. So the Boston authorities, acting on advice from Great Britain, decided to take John to take Hancock and Adams into custody, and it was arranged to arrest them at the home of Hancock in Lexington, where they had been staying for several nights. They had been chosen as delegates to the Continental Congress and expected arrest at any time if their whereabouts were known. Through their spies, the authorities had learned where Hancock and Adams were staying. They had also learned that a considerable quantity of ammunition and other stores had been gathered at Lexington. Eldridge Gary had already warned Hancock and Adams to remain constantly on their guard. On April 18th, which my birthday was April 1st, so this happened in my, my birthday month. Happy birthday. Huh? Happy birthday to you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm just grateful I've like lived this long. Yeah. <laughs> um, when you look, when I, I mean, I was laying in bed the other day thinking about everything that I've been through in my life. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm still alive. I know it. I know it. Swimming in the gravy, darling. We're swimming in the gravy. <laughs> On April 18th, General Gage ordered the march to Concord. It was then that Dr. Joseph Warren hastily dispatched Paul Revere, on the ride that has made his name immortal. There's those 250, you already said this, right? There's like 250 rides. They all, they, a lot of people got out on their horses and went about screaming. The regulars. About mi- what? The regulars are coming. <laughs> Not the British. <laughs> Not the British. About midnight, Revere galloped up to the Reverend Mr. Clark's house which he found guarded by eight men under a sergeant who halted him with the order not to make so much noise. Please. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Noise, exclaimed the excited Revere. You'll have noise enough before long. The regulars are coming out. Now, with that, we're going to talk about Paul, a little briefly about Paul Revere. Um, because he was, the, all of these people are entangled in Boston, and it's important to know how they all got together and who they were and the whole bit, okay? Yes. 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 Okay. Now, we all know that Paul Revere was a silversmith. You know, he basically worked in, in uh, well, he did a lot of gold work, but even if he worked in gold, they still called you a silversmith. He never worked with pewter. So if you find a... Something that was made of pewter marked Paul Revere's, you know, mark mark on it. It ain't his. He worked in silver and gold, and then um, to supplement his uh, his um, income after the war of, you know, the French and Indian War, because there was an economic depression within the colonies. He he began working as a copper plate engraver. So. Um, he uh, so this is what he was doing, and he also practiced as a dentist from 1768 to 1775. <laughs> so <laughs> it's great. He he cleaned teeth, fastened in false teeth, and sold toothpaste. <laughs> so when the war, um, or you know before the war, Revere's political involvement arose through his connections with members of local organizations and his business patrons. Everybody knew him. I mean they would. He did everything from from spoons to very very intricate 
silverware, you know, uh, tea sets and whatnot. So, you know, and he was good. Oh, God. Oh, I love his stuff. Anyways, um, people knew of him. He was in Boston. He had this, you know, shop, and that's, he was one of the few goldsmiths so they, or silversmiths. They went to him. Um, and as a member of the Masonic Lodge of St. Andrew, he was friendly with activists like Dr. Joseph Warren, and in the year before the revolution, Revere gathered intelligence by watching the movements of British soldiers as he wrote in a 1798 account of his ride. He was a courier for the Boston Committee of Correspondence and the Massachusetts Committee of Safety, riding express to the Continental Congress in Philadelphia. As a member of the North Caucus, Revere took part in the meetings that planned the destruction of the East India Company Tea in December 1773. The next day, he spread the word of the Boston Tea Party to New York and Philadelphia. At 10 p.m. on the night of April 18, 75, Revere received instructions from Dr. Joseph Warren to ride to Lexington to warn John Hancock and Samuel Adams of the British approach, which we just read about. Following the battles of Lexington and Concord, Revere and his family lived in Watertown, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. During this time, Revere printed paper currency for the Massachusetts government and helped to acquire powder and ammunition for the colonial troops. Revere went on to serve as lieutenant colonel in the Massachusetts State Train of Artillery and commander of Castle Island in Boston Harbor. The, uh, he and his troops saw little action at this post, but they did participate in minor expeditions to Newport, Rhode Island, and Worcester, Mass. Revere's father, rather undistinguished military career, ended with the failed Penobscot expedition in 79, which we don't need to go into. Now, there's another article. This is from the Paul Revere Heritage Project. The other article was from um, paulreverehouse.org. This one is about his first Patriot Intelligence Network. And uh, it says, a not commonly known fact is that Revere is credited by the Central Intelligence Agency as the creator of the first Patriot Intelligence Network on record. And they have an article over at uh, the CIA Study of Intelligence website. Um, just like Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who added some poetic flavor to Paul Revere's Midnight Ride, the agency's article has no shortage of spy cliches such as intelligence sources, mission accomplished, apprehension and interrogation. But unlike the Longfellow's poem, the information is factual and is supplemented with good analytical comments. The group of patriots described in the article was mainly composed of craftsmen and artisans like Revere himself. Interestingly, the term used at the time was the mechanics. According to Paul Revere's account, the group included approximately 30 patriots who took turns during day and night to watch the movement of British regulars and loyalists in Boston and then met regularly to discuss the collected information. Like modern-day intelligence organizations, the mechanics had its highs and lows. The biggest success, of course, was the advanced warning about the plans of the King's troops to march to Concord to destroy weapons and supplies. On the other hand, the methods used by the patriots were less than professional. For example, the meetings were regularly held in, at the same place, now famous Green Dragon Tavern. The poor approach to security may be what has led to the biggest failure. One of the trusted leaders of the group, Dr. Benjamin Church, turned out to be a British agent. So, that you don't hear about very much. You hear about his ride, which didn't last long, um, but... He he did a lot more than that, and and 
I mean, you have to, I mean, he, he's right in Boston, which is, you know, British soldiers are living in people's houses and they're watching. Lieutenant or General Gage is there watching and making sure his people are watching. And he has, he has recruited spies like Benjamin Church. Um, so the Patriots, 30 of them, are, are the counterpoint. And he was, he and, and um, these mechanics, artisans, craftsmen, were basically the first CIA. <laughs> I love it. Ah, it's great. I love it. So that's Paul Revere. He's a very interesting story, and and he he seems like he was he was um, a steadfast guy. Uh, oh God, I wish I could just sit and have dinner with all these people. Anyway. There we go. All right. So, and now he's at Lexington. He's at the Hancock house. And a window on the second floor was raised, and a voice came down. What is it, Courier Revere? We are not afraid of you. It was John Hancock himself, and Revere delivered his message. Ring the bell, ordered Hancock, and the bell soon began pealing and continued all night. By daybreak, 150 men had mustered for the defense. Don Hancock, with gun and sword, prepared to go out and fight with the Minutemen. But Adams checked him. Now, think about this, Deb, right? Who the heck is ringing this bell all night? How come we don't hear about the bell ringer? I know. <laughs> or, or, the, or the bell ringers. I mean, come on. You'd have to take ships, right? Well, one would think, and then you'd be deaf. Jeez. <laughs> but you can you can see, you know, young men running out of their houses, musket in hand, going to the church and ringing the bells. <laughs> I would have been one of them, anyways. If I me had too. To, you know, me too. Except that my arm is still hurting me, and I'm still. Oh. Okay, you'd have, to, you'd have to ride the horse, and I'd, I'd ring the bell. I'm still a hurt baby bird. It's a wounded wing. Yep. Okay, um, this is not our business. We belong to the cabinet, Hancock. Was loath to accept this, but he finally saw the wisdom of Adam's decision and went with him back through the rear of the house and gardens to a thickly wooded hill where they could watch the progress of the event. Dorothy Quincy and Aunt Lydia remained in the house as no danger was apprehended there, and so by chance were eyewitnesses of the first battle of the revolution. Dorothy watched the fray from her bedroom window in her narration of it notes. Two men are being brought into the house. One whose head has been grazed by a ball insisted that he was dead, but the other who was shot through the arm behaved better. Hancock and Adams retired from their resting place in the woods to the home of Reverend Mr. Merritt in what now is Burlington, and later removed to Bellarica, where they lodged in the house of Amos Wyman until they were ready to proceed to Philadelphia. It is said that John Hancock and the fair Dorothy had a little disagreement following the Battle of Lexington just before he started for Pennsylvania capital. 
The lady, somewhat unstrung by the events of the day, announced her intention of returning to her father's home in Boston. Hancock, who realized the disorder and unsafe condition of the city, refused to allow this. No, madam, he said, you shall not return as long as British Bayonet remains in Boston. Recollect, Mr. Hancock, she replied with vehemence. <laughs> I am not under your authority yet. I shall go to my father's tomorrow. That would be me. <laughs> I was a real biatch back in the day. Next day, however, put him in place. I like how she put him in his place. Recollect, Mr. Hancock, I am not under your authority yet. (laughs) Seriously, that would be me. Uh (laughs) That would seriously be me. (laughs) Hell, I'm not even under my husband's authority now, (laughs) after 33 years, although he thinks I am. That's what we do. Anyway. Next day, however, Aunt Lydia smoothed down the ruffled plumage of the little lady, and it was many months before she again saw Boston. And when she went back, it was as John Hancock's wife. A few days after the Battle of Lexington, Dorothy and Aunt Lydia Hancock left the residence of Reverend James Clark and went to Fairfield, Connecticut, where they were to remain for an indefinite period as the guests of Reverend Thaddeus Burr. I love that name, Thaddeus. Um, A leading citizen. I love, what's the other name I love? Thaddeus and the one on, uh, well, anyway, I'm getting off. <laughs> yeah. But I love Thaddeus. Where John Han- there, John Hancock and Dorothy Quincy were married on August 23, 1775, by the Rev- Reverend Andrew Elliott. They left at once for Philadelphia by way of New York, arriving September 5th. John Adams, in writing of the marriage, says, his choice was very natural, a granddaughter of the great patron and most revered friend of his father. Beauty, politeness, and every domestic virtue justified his predilection. Hancock was very much in love with his wife. Notwithstanding his many duties as president of the Continental Congress and other public positions, he wrote to her with great frequency when they chanced to be separated, and always with affection and respect. Before and after marriage, and in nearly all of his letters, he complains because she does not write to him. Mm -hmm. So when Sir Martha Washington spent in Cambridge, she and Mrs. Hancock became warm friends, exchanging frequent visits. It was on the occasion of these informal calls that the wife of the soldier is credited with the somewhat feline remark. There's a great difference in our situation. Your husband is in the cabinet, but mine is on the battlefield. Love it. Yes, Martha. <laughs> that would be me. <laughs> Don Hancock's position during the revolution as president of the Congress and later as governor brought many calls upon both his hospitality and his benevolence. The generosity that marked him as a young man characterized all his career, and his wife entered as, a, as heartily into his benefactions as she did his hospitality. After the revolution, they entertained many people of prominence, as Lafayette, Count d'Estaing, the French Admiral, Prince Edward of England, and many others. One of Mrs. Hancock's grandiosenesses tells of an anecdote of the time when Admiral d'Estaing visited Boston Harbor with his fleet. Governor Hancock invited him to dine on a certain date with 30 of his officers. What was the, 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 what was the dismay of the governor, Mrs. Hancock? when the admiral accepted the invitation and accompanied his acceptance with the request to be allowed to bring all his officers, including the midshipmen, which would bring a number of guests above 100. 
Oh. I hate that. I know. <laughs> there was nothing to do but for the governor to overlook the Frenchman's bad manners, uh, freaking French, and accede to the request. It was upon Mrs. Hancock's resourcefulness, however, that the duty felt hardest for providing for so many guests in the short time available. The problem was speedily solved with the exception of the item of milk. The governor's private dairy could not possibly furnish all that was needed, and there was not a place in Boston where supply could be, could be obtained. Mrs. Hancock summoned the lifeguards that bathed the milk, the cows pasturing on Boston Common, and if any persons complained, to send them to her. This was done, and no one objected. Plenty of milk was obtained, and the dinner to the admiral and his officers was a great success. County Estange returned the courtesy by dinner on board his flagship, at which Mrs. Hancock was the guest of honor. By the side of her plate was a large rosette of ribbon, which greatly excited her curiosity. As the toasts were about to be drunk, the admiral's aide, who sat next to Mrs. Hancock, requested her to pull the ribbon on the rosette, which ran down under the table. She did so and was greatly surprised to find that by doing so, she had fired a gun, which was responded to by every vessel in the fleet. This makes me cry. I know. Ah. Because of what they're doing to our first lady right now. I know. And you can see her doing this. Can't you see her doing this? Yes. I can. I can. I can see my my first lady, Melania. She's so elegant. Unlike um, the previous one who probably would have thrown the table on its heels. She was a gorilla. I'm sorry. Obama Obama is an ape. That's I don't care how she did her hair. I don't care what she wore. She always looked like a gorilla to me. Oh, Two a- children were born to Governor and Mrs. Hancock, a daughter who died in infancy and a son who died in the ninth year of age. John Hancock died in 1793, and several years later, Mrs. Hancock was married to Captain Scott, who had been a friend of her husband. Captain Scott died in 1809, after which his widow lived a retired life in Boston until her death several years later. That was Dorothy and John Hancock. I'm sorry, I got it confused when I told you that it was John Hancock's son who had been taken prisoner. It was uh, Sam Adams. Oh, was it? Yeah. Okay, well, the the only, the last lady we have to do, and we're getting to the end, so we, I, I want you to, to take her, is uh, Sarah Cobb Payne. Okay. We have to get her up because we're coming to the end and we need to get all of them, them in. I know. No. I just got rid of that page. Hold on. <laughs> okay. I'm coming. Okay, here we go. Um, where are you? Sarah Cobb Payne. There you are. All right, now, the one you rarely hear about is the wife of Robert Treat Payne. And this is um, also from Samuel Hall. Sarah, or Sally Cobb Payne, wife of Robert Treat Payne, one of the signers, was born and reared in Taunton, Mass., where her father, Captain Thomas Cobb, was a prominent citizen, magistrate, and member of the legislature, who in 1754 had commanded a Taunton company in the French and Indian War. Her mother was Lydia Leonard. Hmm, I wonder if we're we're related. Whose father and grandfather, both of whom were called Captain James Leonard 
had been prominent in the early history of Bristol County. Her brother's General David Cobb served all through the Revolution, three years of that time being an aide on the staff of Washington. Her early life and education did not differ from that of other daughters of well-to-do and church-going citizens of the Commonwealth. Robert Treat Payne, on his maternal side, a grandson of Governor Robert Treat of Connecticut, was born in Boston. After graduating from Harvard College, he studied for the ministry, but afterward changed his mind and read law in the office of Benjamin Pratt, later Chief Justice of the Colony of New York. After being admitted to the bar, Payne removed to Taunton, where he practiced his profession for many years, and he was married to Sally about 1770, and they had eight children, four sons and four daughters. The oldest sons, Robert Treat, Thomas, and Charles, were educated for the law, and Henry the Youngest for commercial business. Robert Treat Payne, Jr. died of yellow fever in 1798 unmarried, and Thomas the second son, by an act of the legislature, had his name changed to Robert Treat Payne, Jr. Mm. This young man brought great disappointment and unhappiness into the lives of his parents. Though educated for law, he neglected it and turned to writing in a desultory way. He had marked ability, but a temperament that revolted from the straight-laced and somewhat narrow life of a New England practitioner. In February 1795, he married Eliza Baker, daughter of an English actor and his wife, who were touring the country. She seems to have been a most worthy young woman, educated, refined, and good principles. But at that time, prejudice against theatrical persons was very strong, especially among New England people. Oh, yeah. An elder Payne, on the day of his son's marriage, drove him from his house. A friend of the family, Major Wallach, gave shelter to the young man and his wife, and they remained inmates of the family for 15 months. It is said that Mr. Payne offered liberal remuneration, but that his host would only accept $100 and that reluctantly. Robert Treat Payne, Jr. once remarked, When I lost a father, I gained a wife and found a friend. The brilliant but erratic young man grew dissipated, lost by some unfortunate theatrical adventures, what money he had, and finally, when broken in health and fortune and dying of consumption, became reconciled to his family and breathed his last in his father's home, cared for by his mother and sister. It is needless to say that while he had been driven from his father's house, he had never gone out of his mother's heart. After the death of his son, which was a greater blow to the father than most people realized, he brought the young widow and the three children of Robert Treat Payne Jr. into his own home where they afterward lived. Robert Treat Payne, Jr. wrote the famous political song, Adams and Liberty, in 1798, when relations between the United States and both in England and France were strained to the point of breaking, and war, especially with France, seemed inevitable. The opening stanza of the song was as follows. Ye sons of Columbia, who bravely have fought for those rights which unstained from your sires have descended, May you long taste the blessings that your valor has brought, and your sons reap the soil which their fathers defended. Mid the reign of mild peace, may your nation increase with the glory of Rome and the wisdom of Greece, and near shall the sons of Columbia be slaves while the earth bears a plant or the sea rolls its waves. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm going to put that up on my blog. Even the second time... Reading I, I'm going to put that up. Nobody knew about this. Look at how different the signers of the Declaration of Independence were. Yeah. From Massachusetts. I mean, this is remarkable. Mm-hmm. That that again, they were united under one 
cause. And that's the big thing that the progs have over us. They have their cause. They do. And they're not going to give it up. And we don't, we're not united under our cause. Because we are freedom loving. We are liberty, liberty loving. We are individuals. But, you know, so were they. And we have to find one common ground, and that is getting the republic back, because we do not have a republic right now. Yeah. This is some disgusting, bastardized, democratic, socialist nightmare. Oh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's, you know, you, you really have to, you know, one of the best things you can do is read about um, the beginnings of communism and uh, socialism at, at the late 1800s and the turn of the century, and you will understand a lot of what's going on now. Well, there's no such thing as communism. Communism has net, it goes socialism and that's it. There's no, it doesn't get to communism. Never. They say it's going to get there. It just never will. It never has, it never will. It never will. Stay and why the people who constantly declare that a, a totally failed um, way of, of governing will work. Why, why do people keep listening to these people? It's because they don't know history. They don't know it's failed. They think, well, this time we'll get it right. Wrong. And again, look at all, I mean... Payne and his wife, they were totally different people than Samuel and his wife, than Abigail and John, than the Hancocks. They were completely different people from different walks of life, from different philosophies, although some of them, like you said, they go way, way into the same churches. But they all wanted liberty no matter what. I am so saddened that we don't want liberty. We're afraid of liberty. That's what kills me about all of these progs, and it, it really upset me also about our president mm-hmm. and Jeff Sessions going after the states that have legal marijuana. Look, you people are afraid of liberty, and you also are afraid that we can't, we are afraid that we can't govern ourselves. And the founding fathers said, no, you can do this, people. Apparently, we can't, Deb. Yeah. I know. It's really, I mean, and don't you find that the more you read about um, the people that founded this country and what they did, uh, what they gave up, what they sacrificed, it's just amazing that people are just complacently taking it today. Oh, okay. I'll I'll pay a fee for not having insurance because I can't afford it. <laughs> Anyways, I just want to bring up if you're if you're uh, interested in the early years of the the uh Congress, um especially in Massachusetts because that's what we're talking about right now. Over at the Journal of the American Revolution, they have an article on the the journals of the Massachusetts Provincial Congress, and they have a PDF um, or a download 
that you can, uh, um, no, wait a minute. They have a link. It, it, I don't know if it turns into a PDF or not. That was an ad. I hate these ads. They, they just distract me. Um, but the Massachusetts Provincial Congress's journals um, are there. You can, you can uh, if you go to the Journal of the American Revolution, just put in um, Massachusetts Provincial Congress, and, and the articles will will pop up. It's uh, let's see, does it have the June 16th, 2015 is the one that I'm I'm talking about. So if you want to read what was going on. In, in the Congress at the time in Massachusetts um, and, and the people that were involved because uh, they were talking war there. Um, the Boston troops had just been shed or, you know, they had been, they had left Boston. And this, of course, is a, almost a year after the, um, or a year before the Declaration of Independence. So it, it's it's interesting. You know, it's kind of hard to read because it's, um, you know, language of 250 years ago. But still, you'll see what the people were talking about at the time. I mean, it's really interesting. I just love reading the journal. I read the congressional record, you know, because <laughs> I can't believe half of what I hear. You know, did they really say that? And it, you can go to um, archives.gov and get the congressional record, and you can come to, uh, it's a book um, that was written, let's see, when was it published? 1888, or, or third, I can't, I can't make it, it's 1838 or 1888, it's, it's not clear, but um, you can get the link at the Journal of, of the American Revolution, and it's really a, a neat thing to, to read. So there's so much. I mean, you could spend the whole <coughs> excuse me, your whole life just reading what they had to say, which is a good thing to do. You have to read it all, but it's it's nice to know what, you know, the founders were thinking at the time. And again, I want to also remind everyone go to uncooperativeradio.com and you can download the Uncooperative Radio shows, you can download the Women of the Revolution shows, you can download Patriots Pub and it's a one-stop shopping area for all that is history and politics. Please, I urge everyone, pass this on, read it, get involved. We are at war right now. And I really cannot emphasize this more. If you think that this is the time to, because we got Donald Trump elected, to stop, you have, you're going to have, be, have, you should already have a rude awakening, right, Deb? Yeah. Yeah. I want to read a quote from James Madison. A popular government without popular information or the means of acquiring it is but a prologue to a farce or a tragedy or perhaps both. Knowledge will forever govern ignorance and a people who mean to be their own governors must arm themselves with the power which knowledge gives. Yay, Jane. I love our founding mothers and fathers. Mm-hmm. I miss them. We need more. I know. I know. 
Anyway, so, it's yeah, time for you to... I'm just saying, we're at the end of our show. Yep, you need to take us out, Deb. Okay, I hope you enjoyed this two-parter about the Massachusetts wives of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. And next week, we will be back, hopefully, God willing, without life interfering. Same time, same place. Uh, with another woman. Are we doing a patriot or a loyalist? Well, it'll loyalist. be... Loyalist. A loyalist? Okay. Mm-hmm. We can find another one. <laughs> oh. Anyways, do come back, um, you know, and, and visit with us. Um, we do have a chat room. You can come into the chat room if you'd like. I do check it periodically. Not often as I should, but I do. And please pray for our troops as always, uh, and our vets, that they finally get something going that will help them with their benefits um, better than the VA is doing now. I'm I'm putting my faith in Trump because he supports the troops, that our, our kids in uniforms will not have to fight so hard for the benefits that they surely deserve because they've earned them. Anyways, Say a prayer to their families for the ones waiting for them to come home all in one piece. Uh, Things are not so good in Afghanistan and certainly not in the Middle East right now. And we have kids going into shitholes, dangerous places that you don't hear about because the media doesn't care. So with that, I want to say good night, Loki. We're still on this. And... I hope you all have a good week. Stay safe. Keep the powder dry. Come back and see us next week. And good night. And God bless.